The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. You have entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simron. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simran. So good to be with you again this week, whether you are in the warm or the cold. I look forward to you getting cozy and relaxing and discovering a little bit more so that you can alleviate stress that's in your life. But before we get into that, I want to let you know that you can connect with me on social media at Simran Singh 1111 or at 1111 Magazine. And I'd also love for you to dive into, if you have not, the current issue of 1111 Magazine. It is up and it is free. And there are some beautiful articles in there for this issue about alignment, speaking to information about crystals, about how trees speak to you in regard to many of the mental, physical, and emotional processes that can allow you to get more and more alignment in your life. So definitely access that for free. It is also now available on audio, so you can find out more about that at either website, 1111mag.com or imsimran.com. The amount of stress experienced by people in America and throughout the world is rapidly rising. We work too much, sleep too little, love with half a heart, and wonder why we're unhappy and unhealthy. Half of the Americans indicate that they lie awake at night because of stress, and three-quarters experience stress symptoms, physical, psychological, or both. Stress in and of itself is not the issue. The problem lies in how we perceive and react to stress and its potential consequences. Empathy is a part of our genetic endowment. It is akin to a muscle. When it is used, it expands and develops, and when it lies dormant, it atrophies. As we practice empathy, we strengthen our innate ability, and it allows us to see beyond the surface to touch the soul within. This is from the book, The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. It is a powerful little book and really one that all of us need to read. In fact, probably also need to pass on to our teenage children so that they understand what is bombarding them in the world. The stress solution includes a cognitive distortions glossary for terms used throughout the book, exercises for examining past and recent events to justify biases in the thought process, including journaling prompts and action plans. In addition to real-life stories from Dr. Sierra McCauley, 35-year psychology practice, the book also includes extensive appendix and multiple questionnaires to figure out one's empathy quotient, stress scale, and determining how addicted one is to performance. My guest today is Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist and the chief medical officer of soundminds.org, a mental health platform with 42,000 registered users and an annualized download rate of 150,000 for three apps Sierra McCauley developed. He lives in Massachusetts. 
And his website is balanceyoursuccess.com. Once again, the book is The Stress Solution. Welcome, Dr. Sierra McCauley. It's so wonderful to have you on. Thank you very much, Simran. Good morning. It is a powerful subject, and stress is something that probably surrounds all of us in some way, shape, or form, whether we grew up taking it on because that's what our family life was like and we saw how people were living, or whether it's the things that are happening in our world related to money or politics or health care. It doesn't seem like we're going to get away from stress, but your comments about how we view it can change the effects of it was very intriguing, and the book is quite insightful. So start there a little bit about why stress itself is not the issue, but it's our perception and reaction to stress that is. Well, Simran, you know, the most important thing in terms of lessening stress, and we know that the rates, as you mentioned, have increased so dramatically in our society, is the way we perceive. When we perceive inaccurately, we produce a stress response and we produce the stress hormone cortisol, which has many negative effects. So being able to perceive accurately is crucial to reducing stress as old bias thinking based on early conditioning distorts reality and causes unnecessary tension. Now, you talk about in the book how um, we have hurts and wounds that are from our childhood and that Mm -hmm. we start to distort our way of thinking so that everything coming at us is really coming from that place. You actually ask two questions. Do you remember every time you've been hurt deeply in your life? And do you remember each time you've been given a compliment? Most people will remember the times that they are hurt as opposed to the times that they are complimented. How do these wounds and these hurts affect us and increase our stress levels later on? Well, you know, past disappointments or emotional pain can program our brains to jump, jump to conclusions very quickly when we sense similar circumstances to the past. And, and this has be, been referred to as the brain's negative feedback loop. But we're, when we're hurt, it's recorded in a deeper part of the brain than when we're complimented because we, the brain is trying to prepare for the next situation that's similar so we won't be hurt again. Unfortunately, though, then we start to project old situations onto new situations. I, I often try to teach people that we, we need to not take old faces and project them onto new faces. So if you had a father or mother or sibling or coach or theater director who was uh, unkind to you or insulted you or demeaned you or if you were bullied early in life, that gets recorded in a very deep part of the brain to protect you in the future. What it also does is, though, but it contributes to distorted thinking. So we grow up thinking certain people will look a certain way or maybe they're of a certain culture or a certain religion or from a certain town or a certain affluence, that they're going to be the same way to us that other people in the past have been. And, of course, that, that leads to cognitive distortions, which is where cognitive behavioral therapy becomes in because when we're distorting the present, would cause the stress, act, stress reaction to be activated again. And the distorted thinking, our, our examples are like generalizing, uh, magnifying, catastrophizing, black and white thinking, minimizing, projecting, all the ways that we learn to kind of protect ourselves early on that are no longer valuable in the present because we're distorting what we see. In one of my group situations the other day, Simran, one of the I added a new member, and he was frowning at one point, and a woman looked at, at him, and she said, you, why, well, how come you're angry, Ralph? And he said, I'm actually not angry. I have a headache. 
And, you know, she grew up with a man who, a father who looked pretty similar to him. He's a very tall, mm. big guy. And, and her father was an angry man, and her father had a temper problem. So when she looked at this large man frowning, she immediately assumed something from the past, and she was transferring that old face onto a new face and causing a stress reaction in herself. Because we are really naturally storytellers, and from the time we're children, we create the stories that we need to believe to cope with what's going on in our lives. So then you're saying those stories, in a sense, are what get embedded, or the wounds from those, from what we had to create those stories from get embedded, and then the brain is programmed to protect yes. us from her, the hurts by yes. projecting this out as to other stories on other people. Yes, and when we react quickly, normally when we react quickly and intensely, it's speaking to our history. It's speaking to some emotional hurt that's still unresolved. And that's why empathy is so important, because empathy calms the emotional. Changes our brain chemistry. It's absolutely fascinating that when people give and receive empathy, we produce the near-miracle neurotransmitter oxytocin, which is what women produce when they're pregnant. And oxytocin has many, many beneficial uh, consequences and effects. On the contrary, when we're, when we're perceiving stress, when we're misperceiving and causing the stress reaction, we cause the, the hormone cortisol to be released, which has many negative effects. It causes weight gain, inflammation, hair loss, breaks down muscle tissue, causes flabbiness, depression, and even kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. And, and also, most importantly, it causes blood sugar levels to be distorted, to be in excess, which makes fat cells enlarge and causes a craving for sugary substances. So, so when we react, when, we, when, when something is taking place and we're reacting and all of those chemical processes are going on in the body, our reaction is actually intensifying those chemical processes, whereas our response in empathy or even in self-inquiry would have a different effect? Yes, it has a very different effect, exactly. You know, cortisol makes us fearful, oxytocin makes us feel comfortable, secure, and a position to give and receive empathy and to feel support and trust. It, it makes us essentially open for love. Empathy, the giving and receiving of empathy makes us open for love. But when we're distorting what we see, we're causing the stress reaction, which makes us more fearful and afraid, and we want to withdraw and not be vulnerable. Now, you've, you've combined two different things in, in relation to how you're saying that we can change our neurochemistry naturally, and you're mm -hmm. calling it empathic CBT. Describe what that means. What are the two, and how did they come together? Well, the combination of empathy, brain science, and cognitive behavioral therapy provide people with a comprehensive self-help tool to lessen stress and, and balance their reactions to other people. Empathy slows down our reaction so that we can think thoughtfully and not respond quickly from the past, and that allows us to change our brain chemistry and produce oxytocin and other calming neurochemicals that allow us to see where we've misperceived from the past. Cognitive behavioral therapy is important because it shows us where, where we've learned to perceive inaccurately by using cognitive distortions, like in, what I mentioned before, generalizing black and white thinking and so forth, ways that we've learned to perceive that are not accurate, they're not fact-based. Empathy teaches us to perceive the truth, 
to move past the surface of what we see into the heart and soul of another human being so that we truly see who they are, so that we can see that they're not a product of the past, but we can see who they are uniquely in the present. And is this something that can be learned? And if so, how long or what's required to really begin to feel in this way, not just what we want to think, but feel what's going on in other people's lives? Well, we, we can definitely learn to expand our capacity for empathy. You know, empathy is not an emotion or a feeling. It's a capacity that we're born with, as you said earlier, Simran. And, but it's like a muscle. If it's unused, it doesn't develop. So we have to discipline ourselves to not react defensively and to slow down our reaction so that we can think clearly and see accurately who the other person is and what is the truth of a situation we're in. Slow down is the key phrase for empathy. When we're moving too quickly, when we're reacting very quickly, we're not using empathy to perceive the truth. And empathy always slows us down so that we can look into the unique aspects of a situation and the unique aspects of another human being. You made a very powerful distinction in the book, one that I had not seen before. We live in a society that is rampant with depression. And oftentimes when, when people are given an idea of depression, they're told to think or, or view it as, as, in, as an intense grief or sadness or a very low place that people tend to go. But you're saying depression is not sadness at all. It's actually the opposite. Yes, I think, I think you know, that's a very important point because people often confuse sadness with depression. And depression is often the inability to feel sad because sadness really is another emotion that's the cue for us to slow down and be introspective about a situation that we're in in life. It's not depression. Depression actually is a more dulling state where we have repressed and suppressed most of what's going on so that we don't feel much of anything except hopelessness and helplessness. But sadness is a very important emotion. I mean, one one psychoanalyst many years ago called it the vitamin of growth, meaning that when we're moving very fast, sadness slows us down. You know, think of grief. And when we go to a funeral, when, we, when we've lost someone that we love, or when we're going through a divorce, or we have a major di- disappointment in life, we have sadness because it's, our brain is trying to slow us down so we can really look at what happened and learn from the situation. You know, the benefit of suffering is learning. Suff- from suffering, as you know, comes wisdom. And sadness slows us down enough to use the empathic process to learn, to learn and to gain insight. In my own experience over the past few years, I went through an intense loss and I decided to consciously stop for a long period of time to really dive into grief, to really dive into sadness, because I inherently knew that there was a gift inside of there, that there was something that would open up. And what I realized awakened through that process of giving myself the time was it a deepened degree of presence, and it was an ability to feel sensations physically and emotionally that I had not felt. Yes. That awareness is what opens compassion. And yes. is empathy a pathway to compassion, or is it the same thing? Well, it's not the same thing because empathy is more of a tool for assessment, where compassion is, is a positive feeling toward really feeling the pain of someone else and wanting most likely to do something about it. But empathy can certainly lead to compassion. It it can be the foundation for compassion. 
But we have to remember that empathy has a dark side. You know, empathy, because it's an assessment tool, you know, good salesmen use empathy. Sometimes politicians use empathy. People who are trying to manipulate us can use empathy. People in relationships sometimes who are very good at using empathy to know what a person wants to hear to influence them in a certain way. But compassion, I think, has a more, is, is more oriented to doing and wanting to do something positive from a caring position. When you talk about empathy having a dark side, and this is not to take a position one way or another, and we look at the political arena that has taken place over the last year and a half, it, it does feel as if anger was used in a, in a marketing tactic or manipulative way to feed on something. Is anger another way, like depression, where we're really not allowing ourselves to feel, but where we are reacting outside? And because of that, we're not really responding in ways that we're using clear thinking in our judgments and our decision-making. Yes, boy, that, that's such a great point, Simran, because I, I and I know many others have been so concerned about what's happened in our culture in the last year. And yes, anger fuels black and white thinking. It fuels us and them thinking. The, the good guys and the bad guys, rather than what empathy does is it opens us up to understand the position of another person. You know, people have asked me many times during this long political campaign that, you know, how can I sit with people who are going to vote for Trump or how can I sit with people who are going to vote for Clinton? I said, I sit with them because I want to understand the facts of how they've come to make a decision. And when mm. we slow down the process and I really learn and try to help them learn, what, and, I, and just like you, not taking a position, but trying to understand what, what, what have you gained? What are the facts you've gained to, to help you decide? And then I hear a lot of distorted thinking. Oh, I heard that she did this or he did that. And I said, well, where did you get that information? Well, my cousin Freddie, who reads a lot about politics, and he lives in New Jersey, and the person that he works with is very political. And they, and they said that, well, where is the, what, are the, what are the facts of that? Where, where did you get this information from your cousin who knows somebody else who he works with? I mean, a lot of, a lot of that kind of thinking produces prejudicial opinions and behaviors. And, you know, I was so thankful that I got to write a, a chapter on prejudice in this book because it means a great deal to me. And I think that's what happened in this, in this election is that rather than people being open-minded and trying to understand beyond the surface, not based on someone's religious religion or what country they come from or what the color of their skin is, but who they are, who they are beyond the surface into the heart and soul of a unique human being, we got, to, we got to hear that certain people should be on this side, certain people are on the other side. And that, that makes for stress. It makes for the stress reaction. And what happens when we're stressed? Empathy is decreased significantly. The stress hormone cortisol decreases empathy. It makes our thinking go from a wide, end, a, wide, a wide lens camera to a very narrow camera. And then it becomes us and them, me and, and the person against me. And that is very dangerous thinking, which produces a lot of anxiety, aggression, and lack of thought, lack of really thinking through things. Empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another person. It is the force that motivates us to perform acts of compassion and altruism. Empathy is part of our genetic endowment. It is not an emotion or a feeling, but a capacity that is innately present. It is frequently confused with sympathy, but the two are different. 
Sympathy is the capacity to identify with another person's experience, even when we do not actually know whether our experiences are similar. Empathy is objective. It is not based on assumptions, but on truth. Empathy slows down emotion to a manageable degree so that thought and cognition can perceive accurately. It is centered on the uniqueness of the other person's experience. It is thoughtful response rather than quick general reaction. This is from the book, The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience by Dr. Arthur C.R. McCauley. You can find out more at balanceyourstress.com. We'll be right back after these messages. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. 1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly online publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. Engage with experts in topics of consciousness. Become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, expanding the heart, and experiencing greater aliveness. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com, 1111mag.com. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at imsimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Do you ever measure the stress in your life? Do you tend to overwork and do most things yourself? Is your nutrition generally poor to fair? Have you experienced death or loss or divorce in the recent months? Have you or your significant other lost your job in the past year? Do you have few supportive relationships? These are some of the questions that are in a questionnaire in the back of the stress solution, along with others to help you gauge where you are empathically as well as in performance. When we give and receive empathy, transformation occurs, and empathic interaction produces calming brain chemicals that create a sense of security and positive feelings. These brain changes make us happier and more resilient. It is equally important to our health to have people in our lives who behave empathically toward us. This is all from the book, The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience by Dr. Arthur C.R. McCauley. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and chief medical director of soundminds.org, a popular mental health platform. You can also find out more about him and some of his other books, including The Power of Empathy and Performance Addiction. He lives with his family in Massachusetts, and his website is balanceyoursuccess.com. Welcome back, Dr. Sierra McCauley. We were talking about how things that are going on outside of us, and particularly in the political realm, has been a really good example 
of mm-hmm. how we do get into this black and white thinking and how we have gotten into the prejudices or we've not allowed ourselves to really deepen our, into the feelings that we've had um, as, as a person that looks at the world as mirrors. I find that the whole election process has been a great gift to us if we allowed ourselves to see that we were purely seeing ourselves in the way that we were avoiding issues, in the way that we were um, categorizing people or creating prejudices, and also in the way that we had become uh, unfeeling or a a narcissistic culture to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. Talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about narcissism and empathy. Is there a chance in, in our society with so much narcissism that is becoming prevalent to, to really relearn how to feel and be empathetic to other people? Well, you know, we know, we know, Simran, that narcissism has increased in our society. Empathy has decreased. Prejudice has increased. And trust has de- decreased. Americans have fewer friends today than they had uh, 10, 15 years ago. And, and I think we've, we've become a society that places a great emphasis on achievement, status, and appearance, and far less on character and relationships. And I, and I think people from all walks of life have been discovering that what we thought would bring happiness and contentment has caught many people in an emotional prison that's stress-filled and energy-depleting. You know, many people have learned how to achieve, but they don't know how to love, and they don't know how to make lasting, deep friendships. The love and relationship. You had a connection. really, you had a really good story in the book in regard uh, to a lesson that your mother taught you early on, and and it, it was in relation to her father, and um, mm-hmm. in regard to funerals, and then also later her passing. Talk a little bit about both of those because I found those quite poignant and very touching. Actually, got me teary eyed at a certain point, but I think it really illustrates number one the performance part that you're talking about, and also how we block off and, and, and separate from relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. That, that story was very uh, important to me in my life. And my mom, who only went to the seventh grade because never saw the inside of a high school classroom because her dad thought that you know, girls really didn't need to go to high school. They, they need to go to work at that time. And when my grandfather passed away, my, my mother, my grandfather was relatively wealthy, owned several businesses, um, and was not a great person, had affairs, and was not very involved in his own children. And my mother asked me uh, the day of the funeral, what, what did I think of my grandfather? I said, I don't know, Mom, he hasn't you know, really spent much time with us, but I know he always has fancy suits and fancy cars and seems to have a lot of money. And, and she said, okay, well, I want you to pay attention to everybody who comes to this funeral today and comes to the wake the day before. And she said, because I want you to do one thing. And I said, what, what is it you want me to do? She goes, I want you to count how many tears are shed. And I said, what? She goes, I want you to count how many tears are shed. So the, the two days of the wake, you know, in those days, wakes were in the morning, afternoon, morning, afternoon, and then a funeral. And I, I kept looking at people because there were many, many people who came. But I did not count one tear, not one mm. tear. And she said to me after the funeral and after everyone had left in uh, our home, she said to me, so how many tears did you count? I said, unbelievable, not one. She goes, okay, so now you can decide what kind of man you want to be in your life. Because your grandfather... What a powerful, mm, powerful lesson. Yeah. Well, she was trying to focus on the character, integrity, honesty, you know, those character issues that my grandfather did not possess, although 
he had status and he maintained a certain image in in, the, in society. Um, but he didn't know how to love. He didn't know how to have positive relationships with, with his own children. And yet when he left this earth, despite the money and, and success he had in the business world, it didn't seem like it affected anyone on, on a deep level at all. Now talk about what occurred when your mother passed. But when my mother passed, um, my father looked at me and he said, this is like the League of Nations because we had, we had every culture, every religion, and every race represented because my mother was just one of those t- people who um, despised prejudice and, and bias and was very open to people in general. She, you know, she worked in an emergency room, and in those days you had to take people's information, and she had a lot of doctors who were friends of hers and nurses, and it was pretty amazing the amount of people that came and wept. I mean, people cried who I had never met in my life but they knew her and she had touched them in in different ways. So the difference between my grandfather's life and my mother's life, who, again, didn't even go to high school and and didn't leave this earth with loads of money and possessions, but she had many, many friends who cared deeply for her because of the way she lived. Not not so much what she she owned, but who she was to them mattered the most. You know, the Western world really is a very competitive society, and we are teaching our children that it's about what you can do and what you achieve and and how high you can reach. And we see so many people, both men and women, that have become high achievers and in doing so have sacrificed the essence of what truly would make them happy. And here, your mother, although she didn't finish high school, she was able to live life. She was able to connect to people. She was able to expand her relationships perhaps Mm -hmm. because it wasn't that striving that took place. There's almost as if a deconditioning needs to take place in our world. But is that, in a sense, a little bit of what cognitive behavioral therapy using empathy does, um, maybe after the fact, because we've already gotten to a point where we need it. But is that what it's helping us to do, decondition a bit? Yes, it's helping us rewrite the story we created early in life and with all the distortions that we may have gathered about ourselves and other people and come to what is the truth about ourselves and others. And that's what this book is about and what empathic cognitive behavioral therapy, I think, is about. It's about rewriting the story. You know, I I always say to people that early in life we create a novel, a kind of fictitious story about ourselves that we write based on looking into the eyes of the people around us because we don't really know who we are. But unless you're looking into mirrors that are completely objective, it's kind of like looking into a circus mirror, and we, we get very distorted views of who we are and who other people are as well. Mm, great analogy. There's another section in the book that I truly loved um, and I think is quite impactful. It reads, when you listen, are you really listening, or are you merely rehearsing what you're going to say when it's your turn to talk? Are you just reloading, planning your response instead of paying attention? How often do you hear the emotions behind the words and make a genuine effort to address what is unspoken but implied? Listening really does go beyond the ears. It's, it's something that if you're truly present with another person, it's going to have to do with not just their words, but the feeling, their body language, the tone, a lot more than what we ha- are being taught from a young age to stay present yeah. to. Yes. 
and and it's interesting to me, Simran, having done this work so, for so many years, how many people, <clears throat> when they're when they're divorcing, will talk about not feeling listened to, and as they get older, especially in the second half of life, really want to be with someone who knows how to listen. And I love the definition of holy listening, listening another person's soul into a position of disclosure and discovery. That was a, a, a quote by Douglas Steer, a theologian, many years ago. And empathic listening is like that. It's a kind of holy listening. And no one, can, I, I think human beings can't, really can't resist being listened to that way. <clears throat> because we know the difference of when someone is just talking at you, <clears throat> excuse me, or when they're really trying to understand you and understand uniquely what you experience. And, you know, so many times I've been told that people won't talk to me when they come in for a session, but when you're listening from that perspective, I've never really found anyone who doesn't want to reveal or, or want themselves to be understood by another person they know is generally curious about them. <clears throat> well, and that holy listening that you're talking about, that can truly create healing in another individual because people don't necessarily feel seen, heard, or acknowledged from a very young age in their lives, which creates that echo effect of experiences that take place. So how does one develop that sense of deep listening, or is that part of what grows as we move into greater and greater empathy? Well, <clears throat> well that, that kind of listening is really something that we have to practice. I think one of the things, as I said earlier, is slowing down, and asking open-ended questions, you know, asking questions that you really don't have the answer to. Because a lot of questions we ask are really statements that we don't have the courage to make, to ask. And we, we, we phrase it in a question form instead, like saying, gee, how do you think you spoke at that meeting last night? Well, that kind of means that I didn't think you spoke very well. Mm. But open-ended questions, people sense it because they know it's a true curiosity about what you're trying to communicate. And you're setting aside your biases. So you're saying that when you're truly listening, you are in a very objective place. There's no judgment. It is purely just being present to the person. Yes. You're, you're, you're asking open-ended questions. You're very present, so you're calm. And the other person senses your calmness. And remembering, again, when we give and receive empathy, it causes a calmness within, and it creates a bond. And we want to learn from the past. Our theories and old patents don't interfere with understanding and perceiving. And we want to avoid snap judgments. You know, empathy doesn't categorize based on past experiences, but sees human beings as always changing and evolving. We never assume that because one person thought a certain way two years ago or three years ago, that they think the same way today. We're, we're all in the process of growing and changing and learning. And when we're sitting with someone and we're providing uh, that space of empathy or providing that space of very deep listening, does it shift something in the other person? Are they able to then hear themselves to a deeper degree or take more time for themselves as well? Yes, I think that, that's, a, that's an excellent point because when, when you're in that position where you're, you're feeling that an, a person is, is empathically listening to you, it calms you, the receiver, and, and you feel a bit more understanding towards yourself. I think it, it, it really changes negative self-talk 
because when you hear and, and, and comprehend another person's view of you that is pretty accurate, pretty truthful, it often is quite different than the negative view that you've had of yourself. And it's often quite different than the, the conditioning that you've grown up with that you've perpetuated throughout your life. And when we're listening to other people, then we can also determine whether what's coming at us is projection or blame or whether it is something that truly is triggering something inside of us that we need to look at internally. Yes? Yes, yes. And that's where, as as you said earlier, that's where paying attention to body language comes in and paying attention to our own emotions. Because if you say something about me, if you call me a serial murderer or you tell me that I've robbed banks, it's not going to, it's not going to evolve any, it's not going to evolve any emotion in me whatsoever because I know that's so ludicrous. It's so untrue. But what if you say something like, oh, I think you're a bit temperamental or I think you're not really listening to me right now and it's closer to the truth of who I think I am, then I'm going to react and maybe I want to defend or, or I want to come back, which we've seen in this political climate a lot, that who was, if you're criticized, you come back and hurt someone four times over, rather than taking in the criticism, slowing down, teaching yourself to, if I'm reacting emotionally, maybe it's touching on something I need to look at. So this is an opportunity for growth, not a, not a time to be defensive and fight back and be sadistic or angry in return. But this is an opportunity that if you're touching on something in me, it means that something's unresolved in my history that I need to take a look at so that I can perceive myself more accurately in the future. Listening with empathy requires giving up a self-centered view of the world in order to participate fully in another person's experience. Listening with such clarity and depth of feeling that the other person truly feels heard is a kind of holy listening, as the Quaker writer Douglas Steer expresses. Empathic, holy listening goes deep into the other person's heart and soul to reveal what is hidden by fear, anger, grief, or despair. This kind of listening can be taught. It can be passed from one person to another. This is from the book, The Stress Solution, which includes a cognitive distortions glossary for terms used throughout the book, exercises for examining past and recent events to identify biases in thought processes. It includes journal prompts and action plans, and in addition to real-life success stories from Dr. Sierra McCauley's 35-year psychology practice, the stress solution includes an extensive appendix with multiple questionnaires to figure out one's empathy quotient, stress scale, and determining how addicted one is to performance. We will learn a little bit more about performance addiction as well as the role of prejudice in the next segment. We'll be right back after these messages. Connect with Dr. Arthur Sear McCauley at balanceyoursuccess.com. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, 1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly online publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. Engage with experts and topics of consciousness. Become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, 
a daily staple for lifting the mindset, expanding the heart, and experiencing greater aliveness. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Before we get back to my guest, I want to mention that there are quite a few retreats listed on the website if you're looking for balance, relaxation, learning how to stop and really center into yourself then I invite you to explore a custom retreat or a balance retreat. In addition, you can access uh, my other online programs and my own books, Conversations with the Universe, taps into the sign symbols and synchronicities that you can find in your world. Your journey to enlightenment is about releasing conformity and stepping back into the wonder and beauty of childlike innocence. And your journey to love is about marrying your dark side and your light side so that you can achieve true wholeness. You can find out more at com. Early in life, we create a story about ourselves based on what we think is being reflected back to us by the significant people in our lives. If the important people in our lives regard achievement and perfection as the keys to love and esteem, we adopt the same distorted feelings. We may learn to compete and excel in a very narrow area of life. Overachieving can bring us a superficial applause for how much we accomplish or for the level of success that we achieve while our personal life can suffer and we accumulate inordinate levels of stress. We may think we are being loved for our efforts, but our deeper needs are still unmet because these efforts do not bring us lasting love and respect. This is from the book, The Stress Solution by Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley. I really do highly advise that you pick up this book. It's a wonderful one to really help you start to step back into understanding why you do what you do, how you do what you do, and how to move forward and change it. You will discover how to increase more empathy in your life and also dive into some of the stories that created some of the situations that you've had take place. There are a number of exercises and questionnaires in the back that will let you see where you are on the scale of empathy, uh, performance addiction, and many other things. You can find out more about Dr. Arthur Sear McCauley at balanceyoursuccess.com. You can also find his other books, The Power of Empathy, as well as Performance Addiction, and the one we're talking about today is The Stress Solution. Welcome back, Dr. Sierra McCauley. I want to dive into this place of being obsessed with success and, and the performance addiction. You know, I know coming from an Indian background and seeing many other Indian kids, we are always taught right from the time we're born that you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. <laughs> and so we are groomed for success right from the beginning, and that's 
kind of bred into us. And it's, yeah. it's something that I have seen, not just in our culture, but in, in the American culture. I've seen so many CEOs and doctors and people that achieve high levels of success, men and women, but ultimately they either end up in addictions or they either end up losing out time with their family or not feeling truly fulfilled by the end of yeah. it. So let's talk yeah. a little bit about this important subject. Well, performance addiction, Simran, is really the belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure love and respect. And it's an irrational belief system that's learned from early family experiences, as you just said, and reinforced by our material appearance-driven society. And, you know, I've worked with so many people who, just like you've said, their resumes are very impressive. But, but despite their capabilities, they seem to have little regard for their personal achievements or their own physical appearance. They all seem to be what I call scoreboard watchers. You know, every day they take inventory of how well or how terribly they're performing or how attractive or dreadful they are. They look in the mirror, and they're always comparing and contrasting themselves to other people. It, it's never quite enough. And I think what they don't realize is what they're really yearning for is love because they usually have grown up in, a, in an environment where you're really only gratified, you're only validated when you achieve, not so much for who you are but it's, it's more for what you do, and it's a little bit lopsided in that regard. That's true, because we, we raise children always rewarding them when they get the A or, or when they've won the game or when they have gotten something that represents uh, what we call a value. Yes. We're never really teaching children or people around us that their presence is enough, and ultimately that's what cultivates the deep self-esteem and the love is for someone to know that their presence is enough. So how do we, from a children's standpoint, if we are parents, what's the best way to support our kids, especially if they've already gotten conditioned into that aspect of thinking that it's all about the grades or the awards or the successes about the money, because it's what we're shown on TV between the celebrities and the actors and the politicians. Yes, exactly. And, it, and it's very difficult raising children in this environment right now. Um, but I think what we have to accent is character and integrity. And we all want our children to achieve. We all, we all want our children to realize their potential. But we have to install in them uh, the character that we know will lead to ability to be in relationships authentically and, re- and, and, and be in a real way. They're, they're, they're going to be very tense people if they can't really be themselves and relax. And that it's not always about what you achieve. It's also about who you are. And, you know, kids that achieve on high levels and they also have a lot of pride in their ability to relate and they particularly know how to relate empathically, they're the most balanced kids. I mean, they achieve on high levels, but they also know how to have fun. They have diversity in their personalities. When they're, when they're at a party, they have a lot of fun. When they're at a game, they have a lot of fun. But when they need to settle down and really turn the dial up and study and concentrate, they can do that as well. So we want to tease out their potential. We want them to achieve, but we always want to place, place great value on who they are, how they are with other kids, how they are with their family members, how they are with friends. And, you know, we have to be the same. If we're always walking around saying, I can't believe how fat I am, or I can't believe I don't look good today, or I can't believe the kid down the street, boy, he's going to Harvard and and Joey's only going to a state school. If they hear us make comments like this, you know, we can lecture them about character or integrity, but it's it's going to fall on deaf ears. We have to live it. 
we have to show them that we we are authentic. We we're able to be vulnerable and open. We can make mistakes. It doesn't mean we are a mistake, and that we don't have to be perfect. We we can have them learn how to strive, but not necessarily fall into that very devastating state of perfectionism. So I heard you say two things that I'd like to reemphasize. And number one is that success and empathy are not mutually exclusive. They can exist hand in hand. It's about balance. And number two, that our children and other people are going to learn from our modeling. So in order to really have them do as we say, they, we have to show them how we do. And that means picking up the book, The Stress Solution, and going through this. <laughs> yes, yes, you have so, to do that, yeah. It, it means treating other people, Simran, as you know. It means being kind, being compassionate, caring, not, not making prejudicial comments in their presence. And it means in our own families treating your husband, treating your wife, treating your sister or your brother or your parents with respect and dignity. Show them. Show them that character matters. And, you know, it changes us. It changes who we are internally. When we form these kinds of bonds, we're more resilient. And empathy, look, Harvard Business School did a study several years ago about trying to figure out why certain people from their MBA programs weren't successful and what what they, so they did research along with Stanford to find out who were the most successful managers and leaders and so forth in the corporate world. Well, they found out that EQ counted three times more than IQ. The empathy mm. quotient was three times more important because if you can't make relationships with other people and you can't sense what your customers want or need, how do you negotiate with them? So empathy is critical in terms of success in the, in the professional world as well as in your personal life. So now I know that the emotional quotient really develops between age 7 to 14. And so for many people, is that the internal work that they really have to do to go back and address the emotions and the experiences that happen through that age stage to really help them dive into where their stories came from when it comes to emotions? Yeah, I mean, we have to understand what impeded the development of empathy. You know, my daughter, our daughter, one of our daughters is a kindergarten teacher, and this year she has 22 students, 11 from other countries, 11 from other countries. And she says when they're out in the playground, they don't know anything about people. You know, the kids dress differently. They have different religions. They're of different color. And they're all hugging each other. The boys are just as empathic as the girls are. But she said, you know what the very, the very sad part is? That by the time they're in third or fourth grade, you see change that they start mm-hmm. to more only gravitate to the ones who look like them or come from the same kind of families, and they're not so kind to the ones who are a little different. Why is that? Because they're learning from their own parents. When, when they don't know any different, they all love each other. And even the boys, which is amazing, boy, you know, boys at that age have as much empathy as, as girls do, but again, they learn as males, the male model, you know, you're not supposed to be that way. You're not supposed to be kind. And you're not supposed to necessarily be compassionate yet. Supposed to be more aggressive and focused on achieving and competing. We have just a couple of minutes left, and I do want to go into the prejudice part because so much of what has gone on socially and politically in our world right now is illustrating the degree of hate and anger and prejudice that exists, especially when we look at how we're trying to build walls or keep people out of the country or decide who belongs and who doesn't. Talk a little bit about the prejudice and the empathy and and what we can do to 
begin to recognize, number one, our own prejudices, but then bring more understanding? Well, I think we, we need to realize that whenever we encounter someone who we have an inherent prejudice against, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we begin to experience a de- degree of stress. And when we're stressed, we release the stress hormone cortisol, which limits the capacity for empathy, and it also causes repetitive negative thinking. So prejudice is devoid of empathy, and it, it contributes to a stressful life as, as it, because it, it makes us distrustful and cynical. And that bias creates internal tension and fear in the presence of people who we think are so different than we are. They're not part of our group. And what we learn from empathy, and I know you know this, that what we learn from empathy is that when we look beyond the surface and we we can go beyond the surface into the heart of another human being, we're all more alike than we are different. We We always find that we're more alike than we are different. And when we're able to do that, we have greater friendships. We're more diverse. We're less fearful of anyone who looks different or sounds different or has a different religion. The world becomes this open place where we can learn all kinds of different things and we can gain wisdom and insight in the process. When we shut the door, we shut the door on, with prejudice. We only stick to what we know because we then become fearful of what we think we don't know or whatever seems different than us. I highly recommend you pick up the book, The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. The only one we can save is ourselves, but being willing to do so, we end up supporting the rest of the world. It's time to dive into our own places of anxiety, fear, depression, and stress to understand where they come from, how to alleviate them, both physically, emotionally, psychologically, and mentally, and to allow ourselves this, our own places of freedom. You can find out more about Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley at balanceyoursuccess.com. Uh, definitely tap into the book, The Stress Solution. Read through it slowly. Let yourself take in the chapters so that you truly allow some change inside of you and take the many different surveys and questionnaires in the back so that you can have an understanding of where you are and where you want to go. Next week, my guest is Sandra Ingerman, and I look forward to being with you then. Thank you, Dr. Sierra McCauley. In love, of love, with love, and as love, I am Simran. Be well. Thank you for opening your mind to a new reality, your heart to greater compassion, and your experience of aliveness with 1111 Talk Radio. Join host Simron next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time to step through the gateway of conscious living here on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Remember, you are not on the journey. You are the journey.